This is episode 16 of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks, and I'm really excited to welcome Santiago to the show. Santiago is the director of product at ThoughtSpot, responsible for leading their search and AI product team. He has just over 10, 11 years of product management experience, which has seen him build and launch products for the likes of Meltwater, Hewlett-Packard, Adobe, and most recently, ThoughtSpot. Welcome to the show, Santiago. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your day. I appreciate that working for a fully-fledged, hyper-growth kind of AI startup. It doesn't leave many uh, kind of minutes in the day, so I do appreciate it. And I know there's been a, a huge amount of appetite and interest in kind of OpenAI and ChatGPT, which we'll obviously get onto later on. But would you mind kind of giving us a bit of a background to you and what ultimately brought you from the relative comfort of kind of big tech into into ThoughtSpot? Sure. Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the invitation. Um, it's great to be here with you. So I would say just to give you a little bit more background about my experience, um, I've had the opportunity to work both in startup and enterprise as a product manager over 10 years. Um, and having had both of those experiences in the past and now again i started in a startup went into the enterprise and now i'm back into a startup you realize the different skill sets and the different type of energy and the type of intensity that is required in both type of experiences so what's interesting about me is that even though the companies that you mentioned might seem very distinct one from the other there has always been kind of like a continuity in my career I've always focused on building tools that help democratize and that accelerate the workflows of professionals of different kinds. So for example, at Meltwater, when I was working, I was building some of the first tools for social media marketers and uh, their ability to essentially parse information in social networks uh, to better manage their brand online. Then I moved to Hewlett Packard and then I was helping developers build software to help them build software in a more intelligent and easy way, let's put it, a CI-CD tool, uh, a modern way of developing for developers in the enterprise. Then when I worked at, at Adobe, I built tools for creators and marketers. Um, and again, the emphasis was trying to simplify and automate a number of tasks that happened, um, I guess, manually in the past beforehand with the advent of AI. And there's always been some sort of like a, a thread, even from the early days of Meltwater, working early on with natural language to really democratize and accelerate the workflows of professionals. Uh, and now in ThoughtSpot, the persona that I'm catering to is data analysts and business users that are looking to be more data fluent and that are looking to make decisions with data to be better professionals and make better decisions in their day-to-day -day jobs. And so, um, this is very interesting in the sense that even though the experiences might seem dissimilar, there's always been this continuity around building tools that democratize and then make jobs easier, funner to do, and that give essentially superpowers to the people that use them. And I've been very excited to, to sort of leverage artificial intelligence in particular to make that a reality. And so to your question, like what drew me into ThoughtSpot? I had been at Adobe for six years. I had been working uh, most recently at Adobe in a zero to one initiative, which is when you have to create a product from scratch. And much like a startup, when you start a product from scratch, you have to find product market fit, 
that journey of zero to one is very challenging. And it's a very different experience from taking an existing product that is already in market, that has product market fit and trying to make it grow. I had been working for two years in the zero to one initiative that was essentially an assistant for content creators. So think about having some sort of a mobile app inside of your phone that helps you create stories and things like that. And um, after two years of working on a zero to one experience at Adobe, I decided that I wanted to work in a place in an initiative that already had product market fit. And um, for one of the challenges that I encounter working at big enterprises is that even though there's incredible resources that are available to you, there is a lot of checks and balances inside of these organizations that prevent shipping at a faster cadence. So for example, in the Zero to One initiative, uh, that I was working on at Adobe, even though we had great indicators that the product that we had been built had product market fit, it was very difficult for us to bring it to market because there's so many more considerations that need to exist at Adobe before they release a new product. There's legal implications, PR implications, and you can see this in every big company like Google and so on. Mm. Google, for example, was the inventor of the Transformers. Uh, they invented Diffusion but they were not the first creators of GPT, even though they've had this technology available since 2017. And it's because inside of these organizations, there's much more, let's say, I don't want to call it red tape per se, but there's many more things that you need to do in order to be able to ship new experiences, innovative products, because there's so much more at stake. And so after six years at Adobe, I felt that I still had it in me to join a startup that, uh, that had that cadence that I was looking for, that mission uh, that was very mission driven and the sense of urgency because I felt that the world was at a, a, about to reach an inflection point with generative AI, which I was working on uh, at Adobe. And so my key requirements to join a startup is I wanted to join a company that already had strong product market fit. So it wasn't going to be a zero to one initiative, but rather that they were hoping to get help to build new products to help accelerate their growth. The second thing is the company had to have a track record in AI or natural language, um, because if you don't have some of that background and some of that thinking, starting net new in AI first initiatives is a little bit difficult because there's a, an organizational, let's say ethos that is missing and know-how and, and skill. And finally, I wanted to join a company that had a strong runway finance and that customers felt very happy with the product. Mm. So I, I did a lot of due diligence going through a number of the different websites that allow you to see what B2B uh, SaaS customers think about the products like, like Trust Radios and so on. And overall, it seemed like they had a great, uh, a great position in the BI space and that their customers really enjoyed and thought the experience of ThoughtSpot was really strong relative to other vendors in the BI space. So once I met the team, I said, hey, they have a background in, in artificial intelligence. My role is going to be focused in search and AI. They have this urgency and this desire to really explode and to become much more mass market. And they have an emphasis on testing things quickly and iterating. So those made it very attractive to me. And that's why I made the switch. Amazing. Yeah, thanks for that. I think it's really concise overview. And it's amazing people somewhat overlook the... I know a financial cash runway is one thing, but actually appetite and actually physical customers is a whole different entity, especially in this market at the moment where 
you know, the burn rates of these startups are particularly high. And actually, you touched in the beginning in terms of very high level who thought spot are. You gave a bit of an in- indication, but ultimately, who are they and who are they targeting specifically? And I know they kind of wear a couple of hats on the kind of advanced BI analytics piece and then obviously on the AI piece, but ultimately, who are they and, and what is their product? Yeah, so ThoughtSpot has actually been around for about ten years, mm. and folks are not super familiar about them with them, essentially because they started as an enterprise business on premise for some of the largest companies in the world, like like Walmart, and they had initially built an on premise business uh, for BI with their own database that was incredibly powerful and incredibly efficient. So some of the largest enterprises in the world knew them as this kind of secret sauce BI solution. But over time, especially over the last, I would say three or four years, they did a complete cloud transformation and they decided to become a SaaS product um, that catered not only to the largest enterprises, but rather started focusing on small, medium businesses and startups. And they, uh, they actually encountered really good product market fit with startups as well. And what makes them unique and differentiated against great vendors like Power BI and Tableau is that this company has always been search centric. So their mission is really to be the Google for business intelligence and for internal data for companies. Oftentimes, BI vendors focus a lot on creating queries and empowering um, analysts and technical personas to create dashboards and reports to be able to answer data questions. But uh, the two founders that created ThoughtSpot, both who worked at Google and one that also worked at Bing, had a very strong background in search. Mm. And they realized that in order to really democratize data, uh, basically business intelligence and data fluency, you needed to create an experience that was very accessible to all. Typically, the language that has been used to create all of these reports and dashboards is SQL. And even though nowadays many business users and knowledge workers know SQL, that remains a fairly big uh, barrier to entry to do data-driven analysis. So typically in companies, uh, you will have to request a data, anal- uh, a data analytics team or, some, or an analyst in your team to run some reports for you when you have a data question. And there is essentially this, this big friction-driven process to get insights from your databases. The key insight that the founders had was, can we create a natural language-based experience that empowers anyone, irrespective of technical knowledge, to be able to get to ask data questions about the, the, the data that they have access to and get meaningful, accurate answers back? And that has been the mission that has been driving ThoughtSpot forever. So they have a, a few key principles. Number one is they focus on building a consumer grade UI. And if you think about it, BI is not like the sexiest of industries. <laughs> it's not like something that is going to really focus on building really sexy UIs, mobile applications and such that appeal to the consumer. But they said, if the mission, if our mission as a company is to make the world more data driven and to help anybody become more data fluent, we need to build a consumer grade UI. So that was number one. And as part of that experience, what is the best possible abstraction to interact with databases, natural language. So for 10 years, they have been building 
the semantic layer, the semantic engine that is an abstraction that sits on top of the databases that abstracts the complexity of SQL into this uh, query language, specific query language uh, that does what has built that makes creating queries very, very easy with very little training. Now, as I joined, I joined to, to, to work on the team, as you mentioned, the, the search and AI team. And I had been working on generative AI at Adobe and I was familiar with the advent of GPT and how far along large language models had come along. The missing piece to really empower users is to enable the usage of full natural language. Mm -hmm. So not this secondary abstraction that uh, ThoughtSpot had built, which was already a great improvement, but really enable people to just speak directly to databases. And since I've joined ThoughtSpot, that's what I've been working on. So we just recently launched this product called Sage, which is essentially now this natural language abstraction, a search bar essentially, that you can query just like it was Google, except that you can give it like full length queries. And when you ask these questions in full natural language, we're able to use the, the 10 year battle tested semantic engine that ThoughtSpot had created to transform that natural language into a very meaningful SQL query and automatically generate a dynamic answer uh, that is accurate, that is interactive, that is highly interpretable. And so that's it, just to summarize, why do we think ThoughtSpot is uniquely positioned in BI? It's because they have had this guiding principle of democratizing BI for all knowledge workers from the very get-go. And it's been very much search and natural language centric from the beginning. Yeah. So we had an entire history, an entire 10 years of trying multiple things, even before the advent of LLMs, to really crack that problem of how do we empower everybody to become more data-driven? And that makes a huge difference. Fascinating journey, isn't it? Because you, you, you've seen yourself in, in the market at the moment, there's you know, generative AI startups here, there's, you know, open AI startups over here. They, they really have come from nothing really. And they've got obviously funding and they're growing and they're trying to compete uh, with organizations or companies, as you rightly say, ThoughtSpot to a lot of, so many people listening to this show may not have ever really heard of them, but you can't get away from them now. I know that's been helped by the rapid rise of obviously open AI and actually kind of the, the large language models how, how popular these kind of tools and products have become. But they, you, you touched an interesting point there. You're working on the Sage product, which uh, was generative AI focused. And actually, when you were look, when you were coming in, I'm guessing that was your, I suppose, remit and responsibility to integrate generative AI into ThoughtSpot. How, how, what steps did you take, I guess? And if you look at kind of how this will impact the industry moving forward, what, what, what can we expect to see? Obviously, I know you can only get, tell us so much specifically, but where do you see this going? Uh, actually, one of the things that I think, first of all, that's a great question. One of the things that I love about ThoughtSpot is that we are very open about how we are doing things. Oh, nice. Um, and so if you go to our website and I can share some blog posts for, for you and your audience, if you're interested, we've actually outlined what the architecture of our system looks like and how we went about doing this. So let me try to answer uh, your question in two steps. The first, uh, how did I go about like integrating generative AI and bringing the ideas to the team to implement it? And then the second, how I think this is going to 
impact the industry because, you know, to be fully frank, implementing LLMs in BI and across the industry is going to be commoditized. Everybody is starting to launch features here and there. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, the big difference that we've had is that we've been trying to work on this problem even before the advent of LLMs for 10 years. Yeah. So we have 10 years of customer data asking actual questions to get answers in our, in our domain specific language. So we have all of that data that helps us essentially fine tune the models and get insights about customer behavior that would be very difficult to replicate for a startup that's starting net new. So we have all of that institutional knowledge, all of that customer data, all of that proprietary data that makes us very unique. And not only that, but that semantic engine that has been built for, for 10 years. So let me just give you a little bit of context as to what happened before I joined ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot had had an initiative, an internal initiative to try to do this natural language based BI tool for years. But the missing piece to really make the whole machine work was the last mile, which is being able to accurately translate natural language into SQL. And they try to do it building their own ML models using standard natural language uh, processing techniques. Simply the models were not quite to the level of accuracy that they wanted. So they could never really release it to production use cases uh, for the enterprise because the cost of doing a poor prediction, a poor generation, when you are making a data question is very high. If you ask me what my annual recurring revenue is this year and why certain things change and I give you an answer as a BI tool and that answer is not correct and I make a decision based on that answer, that can have very bad repercussions. Impacts. Yeah. And, and, and the, the challenge with generative AI, as everybody knows, is that they are probabilistic models that are prone to making errors mm -hmm. to hallucinate. Uh, and so the, the finesse of building all of this is to create a very guardrail, secure and interpretable system where humans can be in the loop to refine the results, to make sure that the generation is actually accurate and safe and reliable. And so the, the key insight that I had uh, before joining ThoughtSpot is that I had been using at Adobe a lot of these generative technologies for different use cases. But in particular, I was familiar that there had been a step function between GPT-2, GPT-3, and GPT-3.5. And as I was joining ThoughtSpot in September last year, OpenAI had just released GPT-3 and GPT-3.5 shortly thereafter. And this missing piece of natural language to SQL, the quality of those translations had increased like pretty much an order of magnitude in terms of accuracy and reliability. So I shared some prototypes with the founders as I was joining and they had tested many years ago the early versions of GPT, but they were unhappy with the results. Sharing these new prototypes with the founders that were based on GPT-3, they were able to see the light of the promise of what these LLMs were able to. And essentially doing this translation piece was the missing part to make all of this work that they had done beforehand really work. So nowadays, um, then we started experimenting very quickly. This was even before the release of ChatGPT. We were really lucky in that we started working on these six or seven months yeah. before the LLM craze like emerged, which helped us be the first BI vendor in market with a proper natural language LLM powered experience 
for, for consumers and business users. And so we started doing this whole experimentation and we realized that the key was not to outsource the entire processing to OpenAI or to GPT, but to solely use them for this natural language to SQL translation. And then do use some over secret sauce to pre-process the, the input that we give to OpenAI and then to post-process the output that OpenAI or GPT gives us to generate and create an incredible, accurate, interpretable uh, answer. And doing that was very, very useful and successful. We started piloting it with a number of customers and we've been very lucky that the reception from customers and of the market has been very positive. Mm. Um, it's been out in the market now for, I wanna say about a month and a half. And just looking at the engagement metrics, the accuracy reports from customers and the satisfaction of the generations, I'm happy to say that we are on the right path to deliver on the big promise of ThoughtSpot, which is to really make BI self-service and very easy to use by any knowledge worker. So, sorry, I think we took a, a bit of a tangent there. Yeah. So, um, the, the second part, well, first of all, do you want to ask any questions about that or should I answer your second part? No, I think it's fascinating when you talk about the journey and you look at the, you're right, generative AI, it does have its flaws and because it, it's based on probability and you are, you know, the fact you're, you're effectively building a self-service AI powered search and answers fully fledged wraparound solution for customers, it means they wouldn't necessarily have to use any other vendors or any other tools. And that's, that's really interesting. And I think in terms of, I suppose, probably what you're getting onto is the, how, how big a, a deal is this, I guess, for the, the industry as a whole, with the fact you were the first out there, you were the first to do this whole wraparound solution. You're already seeing the results coming back. Obviously revenue is one thing, but in terms of just the impact, what would you see this kind of impact? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, the first thing that I've noticed is that companies that, um, were reluctant of doing POCs with ThoughtSpot because they already had legacy vendors such as Tableau and Power BI. All of a sudden, they're much more interested in even considering a replacement or an addition because of the added capabilities that this solution that Sage can provide for their business users, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I don't want to disparage any other type of competitors because as I was mentioning, I think that every vendor will try to use large language models to do the exact same thing. The, 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 go the golden standard, the ultimate objective of all of these tools in the BI industry has been to empower knowledge workers to make more data-driven decisions in their day-to-day -day jobs so that they can be better professionals and basically optimize the results at work for their company and for their mission. Um, so it, it's a natural fit. Uh, and I expect all, like, I know all of our competitors are starting to do announcements, but the challenge that a lot of folks will encounter is if they had, if they didn't focus on the problem from a search perspective first. Yeah. And I think that that's like building that know-how. And, um, I would say the key, you know, to be fully frank, I think one of our key magic secret sauce things is this intermediary language that we build between SQL and natural language. This domain-specific language that we called internally, you know, ThoughtSpot query language. Um, our customers are very used to use it, 
but this is usually reserved for analysts or power users that are fairly familiar with data sources, with worksheets and, and things of that nature. That extra layer gives us a layer of interpretability, a layer of clarity when we generate these AI answers that other vendors do not have. So when as a user, I ask a question, I can see the answer generated my chart with like a natural language explanation and so on. But I also see this language that is an abstraction on top SQL that I can use to refine, that I can use to give feedback to the system to further train it and improve it and refine it. And that secondary layer is much easier and much faster to use than having to edit SQL and rerun the query many, many times. And to me, that is one of the key differentiators and magic sauces that make this very accessible. So the net impact of this in the industry, whether it's ThoughtSpot that does it or Power BI or any of the other ones is the following. I think ultimately all knowledge workers are going to be given superpowers. And yeah. I do believe that, that our mission of making data-driven decision-making more accessible will become a reality. And I think that that will translate into much bigger uh, transparency and efficiency in organizations and better decision-making overall, which should translate into more economic opportunity and economic growth for companies as a whole, because they become more rational actors and decision-making becomes more data-informed. So overall, I'm, I'm very bullish. Uh, about this technology really empowering organizations and people to become more data savvy. You know, I, I, I'll even take a stretch and say that there's likely going to be consumer applications that are kind of like ThoughtSpot that might be powered by ThoughtSpot or other vendors. For example, you'll be able to go into your bank account and you'll be able to ask your bank account, uh, where whoever you bank, how am I spending my money? Mm. What am I in, in natural language? And you will be able to get summaries. Uh, you, I, I'm sure that you will be able to audit anything that generates data around you, whether it's your health or anything in this na in natural language. And I do think that you're going to start seeing a lot of these assistants, co-pilots, which, which is called in the industry, that help you get answers back of whatever questions you have, especially if they're around data. Because if you think about it, you are generating data constantly. Mm. Um, health, finance you name it, uh, in social networks, your content, all of these things. And then beforehand, being able to do data analysis around that was very tedious, right? You had to export everything to a, to a spread, to the spreadsheet. In fact, you know, things like Excel, all of those things are going to get copilots. And instead of knowing how to do the formulas and everything, you will use natural language to interact with them. So overall, I think this is going to be a great contributor to productivity and for people to become more data savvy and more data driven. I really like that. And I think it's, uh, let's be frank, there's been a lot of negative press around the rise of AI and the rise of machine learning and, and, and all of this. And I think people are terrified, but I think the what they fail to realize is the upside, I think is, is far greater. Um, and I know that obviously there's a lot to be said for ThoughtSpot being the first doing this. You know, if you're leading from the front, typically that's going to spur you on, especially if they are competitor and challenger brands around you. So now I'm a, yeah, I think it's a fascinating product and we will tag a few of the links, the the, the references you mentioned there from your website. Um, in terms of, we have a lot of kind of product 
kind of leaders or heads of who are coming in to set up a product team. I think that's uh, AI product, data products has really seen a, a kind of a huge surge in popularity and demand. But the one thing the kind of C-suite are always looking at is the ROI. So actually looking at that product function from a cost and ultimately from a revenue standpoint, not necessarily you specifically, but what advice would you give for coming in and setting up a product team in order to kind of maximize that ROI? That's a great question. And I'm not going to go in here and claim that I have like a formula that works for everybody. I think every organization and every company that I joined has had its own distinct culture and its own flavor of how to do the product function. But I have noticed some patterns and some, um, I guess, tactics and strategies that have where I've seen teams be most successful and more, most productive. So if we take a step back and we analyze what the, what the product function is, right? The product team is essentially the translation layer between the customer and the engineering team. You represent the customer, the customer pain points, the customer problems that you're trying to solve. And your role is essentially to distill those problems and come up with ideas and solutions so that uh, you can solve them for this target audience that you're trying to serve to. And, um, and then you are kind of like this translating function between the customer base and the rest of your organization, but particularly the engineering team and the design team, because together with engineering and design, you are going to be crafting a solution that solves these pain points or, or these needs or unmet needs for your customer base, right? And so at a very tactical level, where I have seen product teams be very efficient, and, and let's define efficiency. When you have a good product team, you have a team that has a great cadence of delivery. And when they are delivering products, they are delivering them with high quality, but they are also delivering the right solutions. Sometimes you can build incredible products that are high quality, but that are not really answering a real business problem or a user problem. So therefore they don't have product market fit. So the, the first thing is that you have to be prioritizing and focusing on products that have importance and that are going to move the needle for whoever you're building the solution for. And there's only so many things that move the needle. Things yeah. make you money, things save you time and things give you uh, superpowers or they entertain you at a high level. Those are the four things. And so let's assume now that uh, you are a team that is able to, and to prioritize effectively. And by the way, that prioritization comes from deeply understanding what the customer needs and being very empathic towards their problems and the problem space that you're trying to solve. If you have that problem uh, intuition and understanding and you live the life of your customer, you should be able to prioritize accordingly the problems. So then the question is, what tactics do I recommend? At a very tactical level, I like my PMs. And when I am working in IC capacity, I like to be very deeply integrated into the scrum team. Uh, depending on different organizations, sometimes PMs can be a little bit removed from their engineering teams, but I yeah. think the more embedded the product manager is, with their engineering team, the more they know about how the sausage is made, 
what the development process is, builds the deep relationships with the engineering team, you are going to be functioning as a unit, as a team, as a truly functioning uh, like unit that has a mission. And I, I very much believe that if the product manager is a key part of the engineering organization and works with them and has the same ethos of high work, of good quality deliverables and so on, the, the machine is going to start uh, work, working quite well. If a PM that is responsible for a team knows what everybody in his team or her team is working on, has a good high level understanding of how things are being built and why certain technical decisions are being made, that's already like 70% of the battle. Um, the other part that I think is very critical and that, it, that has often been overlooked is the role, the key role that design plays nowadays in software building. If you think about it, technology is very much democratized, especially when it comes to LLMs. Everybody will be able to leverage all of these great generative technologies. Where companies are going to differentiate is building incredible user experiences. And for that, you need to have a great relationship with your design team. So the earlier you involve the design team in the decision-making process, in the collaboration process of defining the problem, defining the solutions, the more in tune they are with the customer problems and the technical limitations that you might have or the technical constraints that you might have, the better you are. Mm. So I would say, just to summarize those first points, I really do think that having really integrated implementation teams, execution teams is critical and having design, engineering and product be a unit, not separate functions that collaborate, but a unit. I am a big believer in that recipe for success. Having an independent team that has representative of the three functions execute with um, independence, uh, mission drivenness uh, is and grit. That's already 80% of the battle, I would say. Now, in addition to that, uh, another tactic that I found very, very helpful is having a proof of work type of culture in your development process. Something that I like to implement in the teams that, that I work with and that I lead is having a demo culture. So making sure that developers have the ability to showcase in a regular cadence the work they are, that they are doing. And that you, at the end of every two, uh, at, the end of, at the end of your sprint cycle, every two weeks or whatever your cadence is, that the team and the builders are able to showcase their progress and their work. That creates accountability, but it also creates a recognition of work and a sense of ownership in the sense of the development team. And I think that that's crucial for the, the health and the involvement and the sense of ownership of the team. I think every engineer is a craftsman and, um, or a craftswoman and to, that they have that sense of ownership, that recognition for their work will just amplify the, the output of the team. And, um, Having this demo-centric culture has been very successful as a tactic um, to help my teams become more productive and more engaged. Some really good advice there. And I, you're right, I think engineers have typically, or maybe yesteryear, but were the unsung heroes of many a product, uh, but they were very rarely given a voice. So your kind of model and your mindset is bring them in, increase collaboration, increase visibility, and ultimately, the results, the retention, the engagement are going to increase anyway. So I think a lot of companies are 
yeah, that's a really kind of modern way of thinking of it. And you, you touched on this earlier about kind of the kind of the USPs or the kind of, uh, I suppose, yeah, the unique product points of uh, this AI and search space. There's so many companies flooding in at the moment. I know ThoughtSpot, they well, probably are unique based on the fact they've got 10 years of experience in that kind of BI semantic layer domain. But how are companies, not necessarily ThoughtSpot, how are these products and subsequent companies going to remain competitive? Because you touched on kind of user experience, remaining close to the customer. They're all ultimately will be trying to solve maybe slightly different problems, but how are they going to remain competitive? And how, I suppose, how are they going to be unique? Because ultimately you're, you're going to have so many companies coming in, a lot of funding, uh, a lot of appetite for this, um, but there's almost... We we may end up having so many vendors to choose from that is it's hard to cut through the noise. Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, I think the first thing that every company has to realize is that these foundational large language models and generative models are commoditized. Mm-hmm. Everybody can a- access to them, and the cost of inference, the cost of using them, is going to very quickly go down because there's so many. There's only a few companies in the world that are able to create these foundational models because they have the compute resources and the data sets and the the money to be able to train them. But, and and so uh, as a result, any company can access them. But what's very interesting, one of the trends that I'm really interested in is that open source models are starting to deliver very interesting levels of performance from an accuracy perspective. So what does that mean? If I can use an open source model, that gives me a vector of differentiation as a company because every company has their own proprietary data. So let's assume that uh, an LLM now becomes kind of like a, a flavor of a database. Let's say mm-hmm. MySQL or, or, or Postgres or something like that. It's just a, a part of your infrastructure that is a given in any piece of software that is now built from now until eternity. It's just like another part of infrastructure and everybody has it. Different flavors, different kinds, but everybody has it. One axis of differentiation is going to be proprietary data. Um, And this is particularly important when you are trying to sell to the enterprise, because I can tell you, I talked to many enterprise customers, some of the biggest companies in the world, they are very reluctant about sending any type of data or leveraging any type of uh, third-party service that is powered by Microsoft which is OpenAI uh, by Google. Interesting. By Meta. Nobody wants to send. You're a big bank. You're a, you're a healthcare company. You're a telco company. You don't want to send anything to anybody. Not Amazon, no nothing. No. You want to do, you, you do things on premise. And so these open source models enable companies to have their own flavor of these very powerful technologies that can be then fine-tuned with their own proprietary data. And the net result of this open source plus proprietary data is what I what I call and what a lot of folks call verticalized large language models or verticalized um, generative AI models that are going to be targeted for very specific use cases. So, for example, now in industry, you're going to start seeing copilots like Harvey. Harvey is an LLM that is focused exclusively for law and for parallel, for people that work in law, and it's been trained and fine tuned specifically with lawyer content, right? Legal content. And the questions that he's going to be at, that he's going to answer and the problems that he's going to be solving are all based in the legal domain. 
The same thing is going to be true for architecture, for medicine, for psychology. And so all of a sudden you're going to be building these very expert uh, driven generative models, large language models that have been fine-tuned with proprietary data that most likely will be run on-premise or will be run as part of the solution that you are trusting. And that's going to create a very interesting competitive dynamic between these open source models and the established players. Mm. Uh, now, the big foundational companies, whether it's Anthropic, OpenAI, Google, et cetera, et cetera, they will have uh, a benefit, which is they will probably always be operating in the state of the art because of their superior, you know, uh, technical skill from, from an AI perspective, but also their superior resources and compute availability, they will probably be always innovating at the highest level with the state of the art. But soon after this, hopefully the open source uh, the space will be able to adapt some of these models, distill them and create the on-premise. So there will always be this lag. I think much like what happened in the, in the cloud space, the reality is that people will have a hybrid model where mm -hmm. they will leverage big, established, state-of-the-art large language models for certain workloads, maybe for development and other purposes, and they'll probably use their own homegrown open source models in-house. So that's one part of differentiation, proprietary data and verticalized LLMs. The second thing that I think is key, and we talked about it briefly, was the unique customer insight and superior user experience that you can build for your product. Um, everybody can build solutions, right? Uh, nowadays, generative AI enables anybody to program in the future. It'll become incredibly reliable. We can assume that a lot of the friction to create uh, software is going to very rapidly decrease. Mm. And so, Therefore, anybody will be able to create new companies and create new solutions. Where you are going to differentiate is having customer insight and being able to translate that insight into a user experience that very much grabs the attention of the user and really helps the user perform whatever action they're trying to perform. Um, so I think everybody's going to have an assistant, everybody's going to have a co-pilot, but the question is, are you meaningfully creating that user experience based on your understanding of the problem? How thoughtful is that solution that you're building? The, it will become, I think, user experience will become even a more critical differentiator for companies. Um, so we have proprietary data and then we have user experience and unique customer insight. The third part and probably the most critical part for B2B SaaS companies is go to market and distribution. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you, there's more companies that have had incredible products that have failed because they, they had distribution problems than companies that had great distribution and had shitty products. There's tons of companies out there that have subpar products, but have incredible distribution and they are killing it in the market. I'm not gonna mention names or anything like that, <laughs> but there's a lot of soft, software out there that has incredible foothold in the market. They're clearly inferior products to their peers, but they have better distribution and therefore they are the standard of the, of the industry. It is crazy how underestimated it is uh, the importance of distribution and go to market. 
we could have an entire other podcast about how to align product with go to yeah. market and distribution. But I, I, I will say this, making sure that you align your distribution team with uh, the product so that they're experts, they're able to very the to to represent the product and the innovation very well. If if the product that you're building is not easy to sell, if the value is not easy to communicate, if your sales team, your marketing team is not sold or doesn't really understand or is not fully versed and just as able as you in in as it to to pitch it, you're toast. And uh nowadays the battlefield is really about being great at distribution for B2B SaaS. There's all sorts of things to improve distribution, like self-serve, product-led growth, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say another axis of differentiation is distribution. And if you come up with some great strategy and ta tactics to differentiate on distribution, go to market, you will definitely have an advantage. So just to summarize that proprietary data, user experience, go to market and distribution. Those I think are the key differentiators. I think the go-to-market piece is really fascinating, actually, because you're right. You there are companies out there, brands and products, which you're right, maybe not be half as good as some other products, but they just haven't got that strategy nailed down. And I, uh, you've given a, some really good insight to kind of um, the UX piece, the, the user experience side. But you know, we are in this fascinating space at the moment. If you kind of had your your crystal ball, what, what do you think's next for the kind of world of LLMs and generative AI? Um, you know, I don't want to sound kooky or anything like that, <laughs> but a part of the field that I am really excited about right now is the emergent properties for these models to evaluate themselves and improve themselves autonomously. Uh, so if you look at the literature in the field, uh, there's been a couple of papers that appeared maybe like a, a two or three months ago around reflection and iterative self-improvement. If you give an, so let me just explain what that is. Essentially, you can take a natural language model, you can give it a task, and then you can ask the model to assess its own work. Wow. And review its own work. And then based on the reviewing of that same work, they can improve the output that they provided. So essentially the model starts teaching itself on its own. Now the papers have shown that they're able to change the answers that they are giving, but they are not quite updating yet the weights uh, of the model in the background, which would be completely unsupervised learning. And, um, and essentially they would be becoming autonomously more intelligent as they go, which is incredible. And, at a, in a way, that is kind of the broad definition of general artificial intelligence, which is yeah. systems that are able to become completely autonomous in their own learning, and they're able to pick up new skills and improve themselves without the supervision or the input of a human programmer or of a team of developers, right? I am really excited to see, I think that we are just starting to peel the surface of what these large language models are truly able to do, even if GPT-4 just just stays at GPT-4 and they don't go to GPT-5 or they don't build even like a larger model that is like 10 trillion parameters or something like that. The nascent, the nascent capabilities of these models to self-evaluate and to 
update their thinking, to inquire about their current state. I think that's an area that I'm really, really excited about. And I do believe that sooner rather than later, we are going to see some of these systems become more autonomous, especially as you start building agents where they are able to create like chained chained actions, chained tasks. So it's not like a single task at the time, but they can keep a memory of all of the tasks that they need to do. And then they can keep going essentially on a loop. I think uh, I'm, I tend to be more techno-optimist than techno-negative and pessimist. And um, I believe we are going to start seeing autonomous intelligence systems that are able to self-improve themselves with some initial guidance from the people that are... Um, let, let me just give you a crazy example. These systems are able to generate content, right? If you give these systems an objective function, let's say the objective function is, I want you to become the world's leading expert in SQL, and I want you to be able to solve and to translate any business question that a user would have into a great SQL query. These systems could potentially generate infinite number of synthetic data sets. Uh, they're able to generate content at incredible speed, right? So maybe I tell them, here's like a data set for finance, here's a data set for healthcare, here's a data set for pharma. These are all of the different data sets. I want you to be able to ingest these, distill them, and I want you to learn from these. And then I want you to generate infinite number of these data sets so that you are then become an expert at, at, at answering questions for pharma for different verticals and so on. Because the challenge is having, how do you fine tune when you don't have access to a lot of these proprietary data? Yeah. It turns out that these systems are able to generate synthetic data with some degree of accuracy as well. So if they have, if they have synthetic data, they can fine tune themselves. If uh, we are able to create systems where they're able not only to fine tune the answers that they give you right then and there, but they can update their weights independently uh, and therefore like improve the model overall, I think that could be incredible. We could get into a world where we just have to give some high-level guidance to these systems and these systems can autonomously build the best versions of themselves to truly deliver value. And that's like having, you know, an army of incredibly smart workers working 24-7 with yeah. no break to do things for you. For you. And yeah, I know that sounds a little sci-fi-ish, but... Um, nice. It is, it is fascinating. I think uh, rightfully people should be aware and, you know, obviously the the upside's huge, but I know there's obviously conversations at the moment at the, we could probably talk about this for hours, but the governance and the regulation and making sure this is controlled. But yeah, the upside and using the right way, I think the the opportunities are endless. No, I think, uh, Santiago, you've, you've been fantastic, you know, offered some really good insights, some great tips, some guidance about product uh, thought spot obviously going you know serious places so i'll make sure we tag yourself um thought spots um some of the case studies they're running and i'll put this into the podcast at the end of the show but i thank so much for your time and you've been a yeah fantastic open guest i appreciate it thank you so much alex i appreciate your your invite and anytime i really appreciate it great conversation thank you